This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Episode 3. Orla Foyle.
but um, whenever we thought of home, we thought of Two Barrack Street. We thought of a sweet shop rather than any house that my parents would live in, which is unusual, I suppose. I, I don't know. It was only then, later years, when I was, um, came home from Malawi, we moved out to Balikirin, which in actual fact was my granddad's farm. And he gave his old land to my father, and dad built a house. So we lived there for a while, and then we moved to Australia after that. It's, it's funny, I never really analyse it myself, but I, I must do, because, you know, you only have yourself and what you've done, your childhood and how you see the world. And yes, of course, you have your imagination, and that helps you when you're creating something. But it, all, it always boils down to your own root experience, doesn't it? So I think travelling, the characters in my stories are always going somewhere, I suppose. Um, Daniel McLaughlin, who's another great writer, once said, that you have these themes of escape in your stories and I think I do but I didn't realise that until she said it and I went back and I looked and said oh my goodness she's right and even today like when I'm writing I can see this theme of escape my dad was forever forever exploring he was always he was never really happy in any one place and so of course you come along the family always comes along and uh, they um, and that's, that's, how things, that's how things were done in those days, you know. Um, so you just were uprooted and you went again. And, uh, you know, I, of course it would have affected my writing. I think um, I'm very taken by themes of exploration. Um, I say themes of loneliness too and uh, solitariness and um, escape, yes. And... Um, people looking for things, whether it be a home or love or understanding, and quite dark too, my writing is quite dark, so, um, like, and in those days I think we were brought up to be quite independent, and you were told, well this is what's happening, so you deal with it, so like at the age of, the age of seven, before I came here, um, for, um, I was sent to boarding school at the age of seven in Eldoret, which was 300 miles away from our home in Kenya. And then my brother was sent to Nairobi, and he was five and a half. But that was it. That was the way things were done. So, you know, you just you just, well, that, you just took it on board, and you dealt with it. You know, you adapted. So um, that made us very independent, I think. You know, really independent. And uh, so we just kind of, we got on with our lives like that. You see, you can't get away from that. I used to think, as a writer, uh, you know, I won't write about my childhood, I won't write about this, but even if I wrote, like, in somewhere in Minnesota, a story I once I wrote a few years back, uh, I wrote a piece where the character has been told not to look at people or, you know, not to stare, stare full on at people, in, into their face. And I was never conscious of doing that, but I used to do that all my childhood, look, really look at people, and it unnerved them. And one aunt in particular told, told me, don't do that, it's not nice, something like that. And I remember, I continued to do it, but I did it sort of without other people looking. And um, so I, I kind of, and then of course you do forget, and so you'd be told again, don't do that. But I constantly did it, and I think that's part of being a writer, you're always looking. You know, like artists look, you know, you can see them looking and... So you're looking at a person's face and you're trying to figure out the character and you look at people's gestures.
It's almost like they always remind me of those, you know, the high Nelly bicycles are so high with the keys and you'd, so you'd have this. And she always kept that old till, even when, you know. And so that sound there. There's also an ice cream, an old fashioned ice cream fridge there. So in the summer you could hear a kind of purr, nearly, as I say. And um, running up and down the stairs, you know, if Granny needs help in the shop or if you get to run up to the storeroom to get maybe some more um, cigarettes for the shelves or that sort of thing, stack the shelves. Um, then people coming in, people always coming in asking for things, you know. Um, and then if the door is open, you could hear the street sounds. And then if you go upstairs, it was very quiet, you know, because um, it wouldn't really be anybody upstairs. Uh, if you were at school, you'd come back home, and then the only time you'd go upstairs at lunchtime, Granny would have give you soup for lunch or something like that, and then you'd go back to school. At night time, then, um, there'd be the sound of the TV, or my grand's in the kitchen, there'd be the sound there of her doing things, putting on the kettle, and uh, there's um, a back door to the kitchen, and it opens up into this tiny yard, and if you go out there, you can hear people from next door talking in their kitchens, that kind of thing, you know. And then, of course, every hour, it's the St. Peter Hall uh, bells. And, um, and then at night time, when you're up in bed, lying in bed, um, you just hear the sounds from the street, and you hear the sounds from people walking. And that, that's about it, you know. It was quiet. The, the real busy part was the shop. Everything else was kind of quiet, you know, that kind of thing, you know. It's funny, because um, when I write... I know something is working if I feel if I feel myself in it in a story. And I don't mean me myself, but you feel yourself as the character, right? You know, so um, um, like I wrote a story called How I Murdered Lucretia. Now, it's a appalling character. Like she's a sociopath, right? So I'm I'm not a sociopath, but um, there's a there's a gun in that, and there's a and um, when you're writing a story, you try to get in not only to the sounds that are around the character, but the sound of the character, even the sound of their mind, so you can hear their voice in your head. And so then you're writing that. So when you see them walking down the street, you know there are trees on either side. Even though you don't write it, you know there are trees. You know the sound when she scuffs, you know, as she's walking. And then you know the feel and the sound of bullets. And you know what the gun sounds and it goes off like as when her friend kills somebody else and um, so it's it's it is it's a very it's a fascinating thing I think to write a story um, it can be quite frustrating as well because you're trying to get the word the sound of it right you know I think writing has it needs to have an awful lot of sound in it in order to be alive People talk about visual, and I, of course, yes, I'm a visual writer. But I love the I love sounds as well in my work because then you think there are human beings in this story. Okay, they're not alive like you and I are, but in another world they're alive, you know. And this is how they sound. And so I, I like that, you know. Like a story, I have a story where um, a girl is looking at a dog hole, and it's just and the sounds the sounds that are around her in, a, in, a, in, a, in an abandoned house and it's you know then the sound of um, somebody else was there with her and it's just it's it's just I think you know I think with writing too it's um, you want so much of it to be alive you want it to be alive 
and it's a very, it's kind of fascinating, frustrating, and really saddening sometimes because you realise what you're making isn't real per se as is understood, you know. But it's, if you believe in other dimensions or something, it's as real as anything. And it's real to you as you're writing it, and it sounds so real. And, um, and that's what I love about writing. I just, I love the fact that you have this opportunity to be more than yourself. But I can remember coming into my granny and saying, I'm going to be a writer. And she said, well, make sure you have another job to back you up. You know, which is always said, you know. And I said, yeah, of course, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll do that, but I'll always be a writer. And uh, that was it. And um, it was there. And I can remember um, my Uncle Tony, who died last Christmas. Um, lovely. Oh, God, he was a lovely man. And I can remember he really took me seriously. And he called me up short. He, and I, I never forgot the lesson he taught me once. I was so desperate to be a writer. Um, I kind of, I used to read these comics, and I wrote out a comic story in my own words, you know? And I, I showed it to my grandmother. And, uh, I showed it to my grandmother, and Uncle Tony said, that's not your work. And I, I was stunned. He said, that's not your work. That's not your work. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not your work. He stole that work. And he said it in a nice way. But it, the way he said it stunned me. And I said, I will never, never do that again. And I actually stopped reading comics after Because <laughs> I just thought, I can't do that anymore. It was, it was a real lesson. One I'll never forget. <laughs> here and then if you further on down the end um, is the house where we used to live when we were here in Balakiran. It's really overgrown isn't it? Like walking through a jungle of grass. I haven't been in this field now for oh my god so many so long. See that road there that leads down to what used to be our house behind down behind all of those trees. My dad planted all those trees. I think he planted about a hundred or something. And uh, my granddad would have all his cattle in this field. And we had a vegetable patch down there. And sometimes the cattle would come down and visit. And we'd have to kind of shoot them back up here. So yeah, it was a good life. It got the best of both worlds in a way, really, because you had to sort of town life and then you had this life out here. It was really beautiful. Um, I like looking at nature and I, and I think I like describing things in my work. So I will, so that's, so yes, I would say having been here and looking at things and watching things, especially the animals, that would somehow come into my work. Maybe not if even in the, in the nature sort of a section, but even the street scene because I'm so used to looking at things I can I, I like to write them down because it gives the reader then a sense of oh I'm here now you know this is what I'm seeing as the character that I'm reading you know that's all I want to do 
I want to give them a set, I want to give the reader, well, first of all, I want to write the story and I want to be able to be, feel myself in the story. And if I feel myself as the character in the story, then hopefully the reader will too, you know? I couldn't really... I didn't expect it to come to me. I thought I would write maybe something about... You know, I couldn't really write anything about Africa. You could say Africa inspired me as well. But can I go to Africa? Is it? Uh, and, uh, and I just thought, well, what about Ireland? Because Ireland was always seen as sort of the place to go back to. And especially granny and granddads. And so I thought, well, I could, I could try that. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how I used to stand in the, in the, not the very top landing, but the landing up from the shop stairs. And you'd look out and at the street outside, you'd hear the church bells. And some days it'd be very, very quiet. Granny would be downstairs, granddad could be out, in, out on the farm, or he could be in the front room, kind of, because he got very... As he, you know, he used to have his depressed days, you know. Um, but, um, or he could be upstairs, or he could be anywhere. And my brother could be somewhere too. And you'd be all alone with your own thoughts. And, of course, my imagination would kick in. And I'd have my books. And so, I used to have these imaginary conversations. As, even, like, years later. Even today, I'd still find it. You'd have imaginary conversations with people from books. You'd think about them, you know. And uh, that's what really started me thinking, oh, I could be a writer too, you know, I could, I could write like this, or oh, you, if you write like that, it's wonderful. And, and, um, and I just thought, well, I think I always had it, but for some reason, when I was there that year with my brother, um, it just seemed I had more of a sense of being, of this feeling of wanting to write. And I was only about nine, I think, maybe even younger, and... Um, and I just thought, and I just thought, well, I'd write about that in the poem. And once I started writing about the poem, I, I could only think in images. And there's so much more I could have put into it. Maybe one day I'll write a story or something. But, um, but I had to be very sort of, I tried to put that image of Granny, like, really almost cackling. Not cackling, it's not a nice word, but like laughing delightedly at this woman. I was—I just thought it was such a fascinating thing to remember of Granny because she, she used to pray so much, you know, and uh, and then I, and she was so good, and um, so I thought I'd put that in, and I found it kind of difficult to to write a poem to go from one point to the other, and I just thought if I just go via images, that might be the best thing. And then of course you'd ask for sounds, so I thought, well, what are the sounds then? What sounds do I remember? And all I could remember was this: when I, when we went and had a look at the, the, the shop or the building before it was sold a couple of weeks ago, um, all I could think was there weren't really no, there weren't any sounds anymore. It's just the sound of your, your memories are the sounds, really, and that was it. And the only other sound that did come was the Pete, St Peter and Paul's bell that came every so often, because um, we only had an hour, and, um, and so. I think that's what I remember mostly is going up and down the stairs, the bell, when Granny needed help in the shop. And uh, and I just and it was a great house for the imagination because up on the top landing, my brother and I would get on my rocking horse and we'd... There was a washing machine there, you see, and there was a big picture of Sacred Heart, a washing machine and a dryer machine. And we'd, we'd get sheets and we'd do a covered wagon deal and with the rocking horse and we'd be there, you know, covered... And, we had amazing games, you know, and um, so that so that was it. So yeah, that's 
So I just, and then of course I read so much that it was a it was a house conducive to reading. As long as Granda didn't really see you, because Granda wanted you to be doing things, didn't really thought if you were reading, you weren't really working. <laughs> you weren't you weren't making yourself useful. So Granny didn't mind me reading. She thought that was lovely, but um, Granda was a little bit more strict on that. lived. In a dead town where I once lived, there is a dead house with a dead sweet shop downstairs, and my brother and I were deposited there from Africa. We learned shopkeeper skills, and five makes thirty-five, and five makes forty, and ten makes fifty, and fifty makes one. The shop mirror is gone. Gold lit fries cream letters cut out, sold. The sweet shelves are down. The bell rings bold. Shop! My grandmother cries, and down we come to change money palm to palm to watch the sun as it comes in the door to hear the ice cream fridge purr. The auction lady is at the door. Good enough for her, the rip, my grandmother cries when Richard Widmark throws a woman in a wheelchair down the stairs on TV and laughs crazy at her death. And later, my grandmother and I serve late-night mascots, tongue and heart hungry for Cadbury's milk, fries cream, carols and sweet often. And they pull their lips at their reflection, slide their eyes over their faces, fiddle their ties, wink and lip at me. Be good, letters from Africa said. But I kissed my brother's lips once, just to see. And my grandmother saw instead. And I thought I would die from the sin. So I used my grandfather's German Luger pistol to kill my brother on various afternoons on the upstairs landing where God watched from a sacred heart picture. I don't think you could chew what you just bit off, Barbara Stanwyck tells a cowboy, and my brother gurgles dead until tea time resurrection. The six o'clock bell of St. Peter and the six o'clock bell of St. Paul. My grandmother shuts the shop and my grandfather creaks his knees. I can see their faces and their eyes, yet they are dead. And there are none of us here, and none of us anywhere we used to be. God in his picture, my brother on my rocking horse, kinging, killing black-hearted cowboys. Oh, oh, Antonio, my grandmother sings from her piano. And in my bedroom, there are four strange wardrobes, two sets of twins with the same rim on top, and things come out at night. Fingers and faces then limbs, then hair, their tongues slick and sucky sweets, and hydrangea on the curtains turn into dug-out eyes that stare. Be good, Be good, letters from Africa said. And once I was nearly dead on my grandfather's farm, the horses came running, gypsy faster than Bobby. She rose up on her legs, and I saw her huge heart under her skin, and my saliva went loose in my mouth. Her hooves flashed black about my head, and my breath dripped down, and I thought, my kiss will make me dead. My grandfather put up his arms. Whoa, whoa. Later, I ate a fries cream while my grandmother prayed thanks to St. Martin de Porres and Padre Pio, and I watched all the people in our sweet shop come and go. They are dead now. 
My grandfather had a dead arm from polio. He liked to disappear into pubs. He kept two canaries to sing in a cage. He distrusted what I did with his torch and my books in the dark. Little rip, he said, and never saw the fingers and eyes slide behind the wardrobe doors. The shop died slowly after Grandfather died, rotted and gutted, and my grandmother cried against the landing wall. My shop, my poor, poor shop. The windows are dead, the stairs are dead, the kitchen is dead. The auction lady says your time is up and your hour is dead. We steal a remembered mirror from the kitchen wall. The skylight is stuffed with a duvet and butterflies lie dead on the floor. There is the cobweb brush and there is the white kitchen chair lost in the long landing hall. And the shop stairs doorknob that held all our hands. And St Peter rings a bell and so does St Paul. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Episode 3. Orla Foyle.